Have you ever thought that you're at a place in your life where it's too late to start over? Sometimes I feel like we get to a certain age, an age that doesn't actually really exist, by the way, and we think we are stuck doing what we are doing forever. We think that if we aren't successful doing something by age, let's say 28, then we're stuck. The thing is, it's never too late. I mean, Morgan Freeman was 52 when he got his first leading role in a movie. And now we see Morgan Freeman do everything. I mean, Morgan Freeman is basically the voiceover for every major thing ever. Vera Wang decided she wanted to be a designer at age 40. Ray Kroc, you know, the founder of McDonald's, he didn't open his first McDonald's until after he turned 50. This just goes to show that it is never too late to pursue something you believe in. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of stillbeingmolly.com, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, a CEO, nonprofit director, community leader, or just an all-around amazing person who is trying to make a positive impact not only through their personal life, but also with their professional career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact right wherever you are. My guest this week is Stephen Wallace, the author of Obroni and the Chocolate Factory and founder of Omanhini Cocoa Bean Company, the first beyond fair trade single origin chocolate company in Ghana. I loved chatting with Stephen because, well, let's be honest, I love chocolate. And also because this is an area that I honestly don't know a lot about. And I was so eager and ready to learn from Stephen's experiences. You're going to love this one. And you're probably going to also have a craving for chocolate at the end. So you're welcome. So without further ado, on to my conversation with Stephen. Hey, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Molly. Delighted to be here. I am so excited to have somebody on the show to talk about one of my favorite things in the whole wide world, and that would be chocolate. Let's be honest. Who, what person in this country, in this world, really, is like, you know what I hate? Chocolate. I don't think there's really... Very a, few. Very few. Small subsets. Small. Yeah. Um, but this is honestly, when I first learned about you and everything that you're doing... I I remember I said to my husband, I was like, I want to talk to this guy because um, this is this is one of those issues that I think a lot of people uh, don't really know a lot about. Although I will go back and say that this is when I talk to people about fair trade and things like that and educate people on fair trade fashion and fair trade purchasing and things like that. Almost always they're like, oh, well, you mean like chocolate and tea and coffee, right? And I'm like, no, no. Uh, there's so much more to fair trade than just that. But um, the fact that I have not had a conversation about the chocolate industry and all that kind of stuff um, on the show yet, you know, anyway, now is a good a time as ever. So I am so excited to have this conversation. And to kick it off, I want you to do what all my guests do, and that's give us the Stephen 101. So tell us all about yourself, who you are, what you do, and um, how you got to where you are today. Terrific. Happy to do so, Molly. I, uh, my fr- I went to Ghana as a schoolboy when I was 16 years old on an exchange program called AFS. So I won the scholarship. And the deal was back then, they could send you anywhere in the world. You had no choice where you were going. And they sort of selected you on your uh, capacity uh, for cross-cultural education. So this, to me, growing up in uh, Wisconsin, uh, was a an opportunity to see the world and to go to someplace I'd never go to before. So deep down, I wanted to go to Africa more than anywhere else, even though you couldn't request exactly where you'd want to go. Mm -hmm. And so my dream came true. So I got sent to this 
wonderful family in a town called Sunyani, Ghana. And my host father had three wives and 21 children. And I took my place as, as child 22 in a very you know, traditional um, Ghanaian family structure. And you know, loved the experience. It wasn't necessarily an easy summer, but it was a wonderful one and an educational one. And I was surrounded by uh, a very loving family and got to see what it was like to live in, in a, a part of the world so different from uh, Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, which is where I grew up. We had a coup that summer, um, you know, all, all sorts of drama. This was kind of what they call in Ghanaian history the lost decades. This was one coup leader after the next, one military dictator after the next. And this went on for, for um, many, many years. And it really stultified the growth and the aspirations of Ghana, which was the first sub-Saharan country to get its independence from a colonial a power, in this case, Britain. It used to be called the Gold Coast. Uh, fast forward, I, I worked as a tax lawyer in Washington, D.C. I returned back to Milwaukee to work in a family business, and I saw the consolidation in that business up, made it very clear we either had to grow quite quickly or we had to sell. And so I learned at a young age that how a larger economy sometimes affects an individual business. And uh, we wound up selling the business and, um, and, and regrettably for not nearly what it should have been worth, we sold too late. And, and the other lesson I learned from that was, um, you know, how a larger economy drives all sorts of smaller decisions. And maybe the time you really want to sell the business is not the time you ought to. And the time you ought to sell your business, if, if that's in the cards or if that's what the larger economy is compelling you to do, it's never the time you personally want to or you're psychologically or emotionally ready to do so. Mm -hmm. So I found myself at 29 uh, unemployed and revisiting that wonderful summer in Ghana. And it was like that that terrific book you read and you put it on the bookshelf and every year or two you go back and reread it because it brings you such pleasure. And that was my Ghana experience. And so I started thinking about ways I could go back to Ghana with some purpose. And I thought about the foreign service, but there's no guarantee you 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 get to go to the country of your choice. And even if you did, you only are there two or three years before you rotate to the next assignment. So I looked at um uh, what could bring me back to Ghana? And I, I, I had a small business background. I wasn't working for multinationals. I was just a sort of small family businesses and thought, could I bring those sorts of talents um, to bear and, and give me some purpose in, in, in that environment and really as an excuse to go back to a country for which I have a lot of affection. So I looked, grew up in, a, you know, Ghana had four natural resources and that's where I sort of started my study, Molly, and they are used to be the Gold Coast. So it had gold, it had diamonds, and it had bauxite reserves. And bauxite is the mineral that uh, from which you smelt aluminum. Mm. And then it had cocoa, reputedly the finest cocoa in the world. It trades at a premium over the benchmark price on the world commodity market. So gold and, and diamonds were were cartels and I really didn't have the knowledge or the capital to break into them. Aluminum smelting was a billion dollar business. I had nowhere near the technical or financial resources to make a play there. But then that left cocoa and I grew up in a family of people who loved to cook. My mother loved to cook. Uh, my aunt Min loved to cook. And so I was very comfortable <laughs> in kitchens. And, and I thought to myself, you know, this, this one question lit up the room 
in my in my mind. Uh, and, it, and it was this, when I thought about where good chocolate came from, and when I asked people where good chocolate came from, they would always say, oh, Switzerland or Belgium or France makes the world's best chocolate. And I said, how many cocoa trees do you think grow in Zurich? And the answer, of course, is none. And, and that became the sort of economic conundrum. Why was chocolate made in countries that had never, they just weren't climatically able to grow cocoa? And the, the, the countries that actually grew the finest cocoa in the world, tropical countries, equatorial countries, um, had never really moved up the value chain of cocoa and tried to produce finished chocolate, which of course has a much higher value, um, five or tenfold the value of raw cocoa beans. And so this to me um, became uh, sort of a case study for how could we use value chain analysis to create wealth and prosperity and jobs not only in Ghana, but also in Wisconsin, uh, because Wisconsin has this long history of, of paper making and packaging and printing expertise uh, by dint of the fact it used to be covered in forest. And because we had a lot of immigrants from um, Germany, uh, and frankly, Gutenberg invented the printing press in Germany. So we have these wonderful legacy family owned printing companies. And so a lot of packaging and, and magazine printing and things like this happen in southeastern Wisconsin. Yeah. So I was trying to marry what each country did best. And this is really how economists think of it when they talk about comparative advantage of international trade. It's not merely exploiting who has cheap labor. It's really trying to exploit who has the best technology or the best climate to do certain parts of a production. If you can marry those all together, then you're actually making a bigger pie or a bigger bar of chocolate in this case, and not just a, a, a search for who has the cheapest labor, and then you're moving labor all around the globe. Mm. So that was you know, distasteful to me. And I thought, well, if we were really clever about this, let's see if we could grow, grow the pie and not just apportion the pieces differently. Right. So I'm curious, you know, as you began to think about a way you could get yourself back to Ghana and have and have, you know, a, a connection to this place again. And there, you know, there you are at 29, you're unemployed, you're trying to figure out what is what is next for you. Um, and, you know, and, and as you sort of began to develop the early ideas for um, your business, you started this company, Omanhini. And I have to ask, where does the name come from? So the name comes from the West African word that means uh, paramount chief or paramount king. And the language is called Chui, and it's pronounced T-W-I, and it's pronounced Chui, and it's the language of the Akan or the Ashanti ethnic group. And that's one of the major cocoa-growing regions in Ghana. Yeah. And you would have a village chief or elder. You'd have a regional one. But the top one of them all, what they call the paramount king or chief, title is the Omanhini. And the Omanhini sits today as the repository of moral and ethical authority in Ghana. You know, alongside, there's, there's a president in a democracy, but it's still the, what they call the stool lands um, because they sit on a, instead of a throne, the Omanhini sits on a stool. That's the symbol of authority, um, like the throne. And this, this is a, a parallel um, you know, social organization by ethnic group. And so the Omanhini to this day carries great moral and ethical sway 
in Ghana. And that's what we named the chocolate after. I think that's awesome. And what a cool meaning behind something that is really trying to change an entire industry. Um, And so I was going to ask you another question, but I actually want to go back a little bit. Um, And I want to kind of talk about some of the foundation because we touched on this very, very briefly. Um, But this is an issue that I think is extremely important to talk about. We just had Easter a few weeks ago. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of different holidays around the, you know, especially in the United States, it's around chocolate, everything from Valentine's Day and Easter and, um, you know, you know, the Christmas time at Thanksgiving. But the chocolate industry is is massive. And I mean, I remember growing up as a kid and going to Hershey Park and just like you enter Hershey, Pennsylvania, and you just smell chocolate everywhere. It's just I mean, being in the city of Hershey, Pennsylvania, there's just this, you know, overwhelming sense of smell of chocolate everywhere. And then, of course, when you're in the parks, there's just chocolate everywhere. And it wasn't until I was an adult when I really learned about the issues in the cocoa industry and that there is so much more like when you go to a gas station and you're standing there at the checkout and they've got all that chocolate there tempting you it's like I think what does my husband call it he calls it like his impulse purchase chocolate <laughs> like it's the chocolate that just tempts. Oh, that's right yeah the impulse purchase chocolate like you don't go into the gas station with the goal or, or you don't go into the grocery store just for the sole purpose of buying a chocolate bar they put it right there at the checkout to tempt you right as you're leaving and um right yeah, yeah, and um, and you know, but they you also know, call up. Uh, they call it change makers. <laughs> so you know, they make sure they have a little change, and then oh, there's a chocolate bar. You could buy it with the change. In the old days, they used yep. to call it a change maker yes. or an impulse purchase. Exactly. Yes, yes, the change makers, the impulse purchase. I love it. Um, but there is so much more to the process of when that chocolate bar is sitting on the shelf. It starts off as a cocoa bean, and somebody has to pick that cocoa bean, and. The majority of the cocoa farms in the world are um, use slave labor and child labor. And there's a lot of issues surrounding that. Um, And I'd love for you to just kind of, if you can, just give us a 36,000 foot view of a lot of the, you know, and and feel free to be as honest and and as open and as raw as you you want or know um, to kind of share some of the issues that are in the chocolate industry and why you were trying to change that. Right. And I would say, um, I think your, your comment was the majority of cocoa is grown on through slave labor. And, th- and that is, I don't believe that's correct. It's, it's not the majority really? by a long time. You have to also look at country by country, yeah, Molly. That's um, true. And because when I looked at it, you know, my first thought was, you know, it's important. In, what does it look like? What does, you know, are, are there kids in chains and leg irons? I mean, the, you use the word slavery and it is so charged. Um, and, and I can talk about, you know, perhaps two countries, but and they happen to be the two largest cocoa growing countries in the world, yeah. Ivory Coast and Ghana. Um, between them, they produce something like 64% of all the cho- chocolate in the world. So it's mm-hmm. quite, if they ever behaved like a cartel, it would be quite significant. Yeah. Uh, but they've had two very different legacies. So um, Ghana cocoa farms, there's in fact about 750,000 individual cocoa farms. And they only are on a, a land mass that's perhaps 20% of the country, sort of on the lower half of the country. Yeah. Um, and up from the coast. So it's, it's a densely concentrated industry um, that's worth over $2.5 billion a year. And, mm-hmm. and just cocoa sales. And so it's huge. And it's it's in Ghana, at least, the middle class. So these are small farms, really all that a 
family can can do. I think the average is like two to three acres, something like that. I mean, yeah. it's, they're small. It's like a little plot of land. Um, and so, um, and as I said, they're large families. So, and I said, the other interesting thing is Ghana is the last matrilineal society, one of the last on, on the planet. And so the land holdings are actually owned by women, which mm-hmm. I think is, bears some importance. Yeah. Um, um, so unlike jolly old England, where the land and the property would go to the oldest son in Ghana, it goes to the mother's line. And even though my host father had three wives and you had this a tradition of, of, of polygamy in some cases, although I'd like to touch on that too, um, you know, he was on an allowance from his first wife. You know, the, the number one wife still holds often all the economic assets, you mm-hmm. know, that came with her. So, um, you know, this would bring up uh, what is the likelihood of mothers engaging in slavery with children? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's, as I said, it's, it's a pretty nuanced situation. Oh, and sure. in fact, um, so the way it works in Ghana is the government, um, is, is there are two, you, you grow two co- crops of cocoa a year, Bali. Mm-hmm. There's a, a light crop and a main crop. It's that fertile. And the government of Ghana promises you a minimum price. And this is, they've done this since the early 1960s, long before there was any fair trade sorts of regimes in the world. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're the cocoa farmer and I'm the government, I'd say on January 1, I will pay you $1,000 a ton for your cocoa if you hit certain quality standards and metrics. So you can go off and, and decide how much to irrigate what, how much work to put into your farm, when to fertilize, when to, to weed, based on a guarantee you'll get $1,000 a metric ton. Now, at the end of the year, when you bring your beans, and let's assume they're, they're wonderful quality beans, the world price dropped to $500 a metric ton. Well, you still get the 1000 and the government of Ghana goes into debt. Um, so the, you know, farmers are guaranteed a price, which is... Um, you know, I think flies in the face of some of the people that talk about exploitation. And then, for example, the last couple of years, cocoa prices have been at almost a 30-year high. We haven't seen prices this high um, in the last few years in, in three decades. Um, so the prices might be $3,000 a metric ton, for example. Um, you would get a bonus, most of that bonus. So you'd get your 1000 you were promised. And the $2,000 premium, most of it would go back in tranches of bonuses to the cocoa farmers with the government keeping a little bit. So, uh, the, you know, I would dispute, at least in Ghana, they have had since the 1960s, pre any talk of fair trade, just the plain economics of it. This was the middle class in Ghana. And it was also, frankly, Mali, 9 million votes. Mm-hmm. So you see this producer price that I'd guarantee you in an election year, it'll often go up 30%. So instead of giving you $1,000 this year, I'm going to give you 1300 just because it's, you know, it's keeping a large voting block often very, very happy. Right. right. Um, the other thing Ghana did, um, and this was going back, say, five or six years ago, they decided to do, they called it the Pilot Study on Child Labor. And you can read this. It's posted online. And they set out over a three-year period, more or less, to visit every single cocoa farm in Ghana. And they brought in third parties, and they've decided to have, they had about 150 benchmarks or metrics to see what slavery looked like, assuming they weren't going to see something out of, um, um, you know, a fiction of what it would look like. So they figured, for example, did you live on a farm 
Were there children on the farm? Yes or no? If so, who owned the farm? Was it a mother, father, aunt, uncle, or a grandparent, or someone else? Figuring if you were on a family farm, you were least likely to be exploited. If it was a third party, then that would be an indicia of possible exploitation. Mm -hmm. Then they looked at at um, school attendance that week. So the previous week, if the, the census taker came, did was this child in school or not? And the attendance rates were like in the 90%, far greater than any U.S. high school, you know, most U.S. urban high schools or mm -hmm. suburban high schools. Um, they don't have 90% attendance rates. So the thought was, well, if you were in school, you were not likely to be exploited. Um, and so I, I would make the argument that in Ghana, at least, the cases of this are, are, are really outliers and aberrations in the vast majority of, of um, I mean, the government has, it's a democratically elected government. It has a huge stake in keeping cocoa farmers happy yeah. um, and well-paid. So they tend to be, this is the middle class in Ghana. That is not the case if you go to other countries that are not democratically elected, where, where heads of state can cut deals to promise cheap cocoa and then go and you know, allow lots of exploitation. Yeah. In fact, this is this is a huge, as I said, the middle class. So, um, well, you know, it's always a concern. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. That I'm always vigilant for it, and I don't sit back and say, you know, we've we've solved this. You always want to look for for exploitation at any at any step on the value yeah. chain. This is such an interesting and fun conversation with Stephen, and I just wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsor of the show who was able to help make the show possible, and that's my people Causebox. As you know, Causebox is my favorite ethical subscription box, and I've been a subscriber for over two years. It's pretty much two and a half years now. How it works is each season, a new box is filled with everything from accessories, home goods, and jewelry to the best in skincare and wellness products that are not only amazing, but they are also doing the most good. And each box delivers amazing value with a guarantee of $150 worth of products for only $54.95. Or if you use my coupon code MOLLY, you get $15 off. The products are not just beautiful, they're also useful. There are a few, just a few spring boxes left, so you gotta hop on it. You can actually check out my Facebook page, I'm at Still Being Molly, for my live unboxing video, and you can see everything in the spring box. But best of all, the impact of each cause box makes the whole membership even more worth it. Their spring box, for example, employed more than 600 artisans under fair trade conditions in India and Kenya. And it put 100 young girls in India through school. There are a limited number of spring boxes left. So you got to hop on at ASAP. Go to stillbeingmolly.com slash causebox and use the coupon code MOLLY for $15 off. Now back to my conversation with Stephen. I remember, I want to say it was in late 2016, early 2017. Um, I believe it was the Wall Street Journal and like Fortune. Um, a couple of those big publications like that had done this big kind of expose on, um, you know, child labor and um, and slave labor in, uh, in, in West Africa and in the cocoa industry. And it was... Um, you know, just one of those things that was just really eye-opening for me because I think over the years, you know, you just tend to think positively like, oh, certainly this has to be an issue that's getting better. And I'm glad to, to hear from you as somebody who's working in this industry in Ghana that you've seen, you know, you've seen such progress and improvement. Obviously, other countries that, like you said, that are not democratically elected are going to have, 
you know, some more issues. But I think it is still a topic like until it's completely solved, until the day that we no longer see, you know, children or, um, or, or, you know, until we no longer see farmers being paid below the poverty level and things like that, that that there's still work to be done and, and conversations to be had. But that I mean, that is encouraging that um, that you you know, the work that you're doing and and that you've seen progress um, along the way. Right. And um, I think it is an ongoing commitment. Um, You work in a country that is resource challenged. Um, Right. You know, Ghana, I went when I was there in 1978, it was a poor country by World Bank standards. It was, you know, a low income country. It has been knocking on the door of middle income status. And so, you know, what is the priority in any given year um, in, in countries that are what? economists call emerging democracies, mm-hmm. you know, is complicated. And, and, and education is huge. And maternal health is huge. And uh, public health and AIDS and, and dengue fever and tuberculosis, all huge issues. Right. And at some place, you, a government has to prioritize what are they going to do first? Right. What is the most egregious of problems? And what is working fairly well? And then you kind of revisit and make sure everything is making improvement. But I, th- I think it's naive to think in, in one year, you address it and say, okay, Kate, yeah, problem solved. Yeah. Everything's fine. Yeah. And then you ignore it for five years. So this is something. In, and I would say you go to other countries that have I talked about the average size of the cocoa farm. Other countries have cocoa farms that are 10 times the size of yeah. Ghana's. Mm-hmm. How do you farm? You, you need labor to farm a very large cocoa farm. Right. And and depending, you know, the, the former colonial histories of some of these countries, it's easier for people to migrate from, you know, a French-speaking former colony to another French-speaking former colony. And so you see these labor migrations. Ghana is surrounded by Francophone Africa, former French colonies. And mm-hmm. so it's, you know, its borders are a little, um, I would argue they're a little more secure. People just don't kind of come in looking for cheap, cheap labor. And, and yeah. you see those sorts of exploitations. When people are willing to work for nothing, that's what you do see exploitation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, so these are, yeah, that you look at the size of the cocoa farms, I said, they're pretty small here, uh, very small. Um, and uh, people have other choices. They can if, if the prices of cocoa aren't good, they, they'll, they'll plant yams. They'll plant cassavas. Right. Cocoa is a cash crop. It's an export crop. Yeah. It's not as if people make a lot of chocolate in Ghana and eat it. It's, they, they can put food on the table and eat growing other crops. Right. So it has to be economically viable. Mm. Um, and so I look at some of this and say, well, then maybe we just pay cocoa farmers more. It's that simple. Yeah. And everyone else pays a nickel more for your chocolate bar in case, you know, case closed, problem solved. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's just that simple. Yeah. No, that's really that is really interesting and just such a such a unique way to look at it. Um, but that kind of leads me back to sort of the original question I was going to ask. Um, and that's, you know, as you began to to look at starting Omanhini, what did that process look like in the beginning? Did you just kind of fly over to Ghana and just say, hey, I want to start a high-end chocolate bar here. You know, I want to start a high-end chocolate company. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, <laughs> I think the, the truth of it is, Molly, you go into these things 
you know, breathtakingly naive about what it'll take <laughs> to, to launch. And your fantasy is, oh, I'm going to do this. And in a year, someone's going to see it. We will be on the front page of, of some huge media organization. Um, and then we're off and running. Right. And you know, that was not the case at all. And, and especially hard because we live in a fast company world. We live in yep. a world of 20 year olds founding companies that get billion dollar valuations and then often lose those valuations. But in any case, you know, this was a slow company. It took four years to make our first chocolate bar for my first trip. So what I started doing is I, I now, and, and so your listeners have context, and I have to remind myself, this is pre-cell phone, pre-internet. Um, so I was communicating on thermal fax, you know, and landline <laughs> yeah. telephones, Yep. which you know, in a country that's phone service and electricity didn't work 24 hours a day. So a very you know, slow and painstaking process. I mean, it was closer to quills and scrolls of parchment than it was to how we, you know, <laughs> Skype and what's up and all of this. Smoke signals, carrier pigeons, you know. <laughs> right. We were, we were old school. Yeah. I like to affectionately call it nostalgic old school ways of doing things. And I you know, was trying to find a sympathetic ear. We finally found one. And I did a lot of work you know, through the Ghanaian embassies and through the U.S. embassy in Accra, Ghana, which is the capital city. And finally, um, and one of the wonderful things the U.S. State Department does is they employ young Ghanaians in embassies and in young what they call FSNs. It stands for Foreign Service Nationals in their embassies all over the world. So these are people that they've identified as maybe having a, you know bright, young, talented people in their late 20s and 30s um, that they'd like uh, you know, to, to get some touch point with the U.S. and often you know, very helpful to the U.S. in terms of you know, business development and, 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 and political agendas, too. And so we had a, a young Ghanaian who loved this idea. He said, I've gone as far as we can go. You have to come over and you have to start meeting with Ghana's Cocoa Board. And Cocoa Board is a ministry. It, it's um, a ministerial level government uh, agency responsible for the cocoa sector. Everything from what seed stock the farmer plants. So the farmers are independent, but they can't even plant their own seed stock. They have to get their seed stock from a government agronomy station. And then once they grow their beans, they have to sell all their beans back to the government, another government monopoly. And that government monopoly weighs the beans and gets them ready for market. Then another government monopoly sells the beans on the two large cocoa exchanges in London and New York at the time. So it was a vertical integrated ministry designed to keep foreigners out. They didn't want multinational companies coming in and negotiating with individual cocoa farmers. They thought the, the market knowledge disparity would be so great that the Ghanaian cocoa farmers would be exploited. So the government said, we're going to buy all the beans and then we will go to market with 600,000 metric tons of premium cocoa and we will negotiate with the largest cocoa processors in the world. That we, we will get a better price. And guess what? It worked. This whole sort of quality control has always gone up beans traditionally for decades, decades, uh, you know, half a century, have, have gotten a premium over benchmark prices because of this government intervention. Um, so on the one hand, it's had a wonderful result in quality control and increasing prices for cocoa farmers. On the other hand, you know, it was designed to keep people like me out. So I had to be embark on a four-year um, journey of sitting in the anterooms of various ministers and deputy ministers um, trying to uh, 
convinced them that this was a smart idea. And while people thought intellectually it was great, we've always, Canadian said, we always wanted to have premium chocolate, export grade chocolate here. Um, the fact was it, it wasn't a particularly receptive environment for entrepreneurs. So much of it, I, I realized, would have to be on my shoulders, especially the risk of failure. Uh, it was a culture in which um, you know, pe people didn't want to fail publicly. And, and at that time, 85% of all the jobs in Ghana were government jobs. 15% were private what we would call private sector jobs. Those were largely cocoa farmers. So if you lost your job in a ministry, um, you didn't, there wasn't a robust private sector you could go find employment in. So you found that the ministries tended to be very um, incremental um, in their vision and take, you know, no one wanted to try something new that possibly could fail. And I found that this, Molly, was sort of a cultural difference because a lot of in the United States, I'm just going to generalize kind of a broad brush here. Most 20-year-olds think they can run Facebook or Google or Uber and, you know, absolutely bald-faced, you know, enthusiasm and disproportionate belief in their own abilities to run big, complicated organizations. Mm -hmm. You know, by contrast, in Ghana, you had ministers with advanced degrees from the best universities in the world. And they were very risk adverse. That was their role. They had to protect the, the public um, commonwealth. You know, it was not their job to be venture capitalists. And I understood that. So you know, it was government's job to protect the assets yeah. of the cocoa sector. And so they were not, you know, anything that had some degree of a, a whiff of failure was not very attractive to them. So that <laughs> took me a long time to, to accept that and figure out. So given that was the, the table stakes, how do we move forward? Right. And... You know, this has obviously taught you a lot along the way. Um, what are some of the things that, you know, as you mentioned, you were really naive when you started out and you're a slow company in a fast company world. What were some of the things that you really did not expect that you encountered along the way? Well, I, I think it was this sense of the risk adversity. You know, to me, if you were dealing with many of these post-colonial, let's um, take a one quick step back. A lot of these former colonies, it's a scramble for Africa that divvied up the continent between the, you know, the Germans and the British and the Dutch and the Portuguese and the French. Um, Africa was the pantry for Europe. It's where you took extractive industries. So you take the gold, the diamond, the palm oil, the cocoa, and you take it offshore for processing where the real wealth was created. So for generations, there was never any expectation that you'd occupy any step on the value chain other than the very lowest one, the lowest commodity. You were an extractive industry, and that was it. So I would have thought there'd been more recognition of that and maybe more frustration to move up and more willingness to accept the inherent risks of moving up the value chain, which means we may make that chocolate bar and it may be a lousy chocolate bar. We don't yeah. know, but at least we're going to try. And if we put good people and good effort and good intent around the effort, you know, we should do, you know, we should do very well or at least you know, passingly well. But the, the chances we would fail spectacularly in my mind, and now this is maybe perhaps a very American way of looking at it. In my mind, the chances that we would absolutely um, fail completely 
we're close to zero. We would learn something. There would be some good that comes out of this effort. Yeah. Um, if only that the next person that tries to move at the value chain would maybe avoid some of our mistakes. So I thought there was lots of value in doing it and, and no shame in trying and failing. And I think that the biggest thing was, and you know, we, we fail to appreciate in, a, in the United States how important it is that we don't attach a tremendous amount of stigma to failing in business. In fact, our bankruptcy laws are designed to get people back up on their feet and trying again. And in some circles in the venture capital world in Silicon Valley, you almost don't get funded unless you've had a failure or two. Mm. It's considered almost a mark of, you know, you're a badge of honor and a badge of credibility that, oh, we did a startup, it didn't do too well, and now this now we're smarter for this one and you ought to yeah. fund us now. So Ghana never had that tradition yeah. at all. And so it was really hard. Yeah. The other problem was it, it had a lot of ministries. And I think this is a, a leftover, a legacy of, of the, the British system. So you know, they have a, a ministry of transport and ministry of highways. And, and I always wondered, well, if there's a pothole, who's responsible for that? I mean, there's so many ministries in charge with what would appear at least first blush to be overlapping um, responsibilities that I think no, when too many people are in charge, nobody's in charge. Right. And so even in the cocoa sector, you had cocoa, the cocoa bird, there's an agriculture minister. There's a labor ministry. Um, there's a trade in industry ministry. You know, so you've got at least four ministries there that, that have some claim to cocoa or an agricultural product. You know, so you, who's in charge became a big question. I spent a lot of time running between ministries waiting to see who could green light this project. Yeah. Um, and quite frankly, at the end of the day, we just went ahead because – Everyone was looking for everyone else to take the responsibility, and we just said, let's just do it. Yeah. Um, so you got started. Um, what You said it took four years from the time you, you your first trip back until yes. you made that first chocolate bar. Uh, what year was that when you made that first chocolate bar? Okay, so we started this in, in February of 1991. We didn't sell the first chocolate bar Till late summer of 1994, 1994. which and was at the, um, excuse me, yeah, fancy food show in New York City in 1994. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, from and yeah, go ahead. I, I should just tell you about, so we, we, we do this investment, we go out to New York, it is the largest specialty food show in North America, it fills the Jacob Javits Convention Center, which is like three or four exhibition halls. You know, you could you could moor a Navy blimp in them. I mean, they're enormous. We had this tiny little booth. And our first sale was to a small food co-op in Madison, Wisconsin, which is about 90 miles straight west from where I'm standing right now. So we could have, you know, literally gotten in my car, driven and made that sale. But, you know, we, we had to go all the way to New York, um, New York to get our first sale and others. But the first one came from Wisconsin, that's, ironically. That's so funny. Um, so... From 1994 to today, obviously a lot has happened in that time. And you've learned a lot about business and you've learned a lot about, you know, chocolate and all of that kind of stuff. Where is your primary market today? You know, if somebody wanted to buy an Omanhini bar, where do they get it? Um, you know, and, and what sort of sets you apart from, you know, what makes you different from, say, for you know, example, Cadbury or Nestle or Hershey, what what makes you different from them? Oh, absolutely. And the short answer is freshness. Um, mm -hmm. And there's so we did three things when we started this. We were known for three firsts. We were the first single origin chocolate bar. 
So if you bought a chocolate bar pre-1991, um, there were cocoa beans from many countries in that chocolate bar. And a, a big chocolatier would reconcile the price of their cocoa. So if the cocoa from Ghana was expensive, they could buy something from Brazil or Ivory Coast. So you'd had, you had a mixture of cocoa beans, both for flavor and price, and you try to reconcile those. Yeah. Um, we looked at this as if the cocoa from Ghana, which was the most expensive cocoa in the world, um, should be like a Cuban cigar or French champagne or a single malt whiskey from Scotland. Yeah. Now, let's give 100% of Ghana beans and showcase it. The second thing we did is we wanted to produce at origin. So today there are people that do Ghana chocolate bars, but they're making them in New Jersey or they're making them uh, you know, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So those beans are still put in the hold of a ship, fumigated, subjected to a six to eight week ocean voyage, brought to the U.S. or to Switzerland for processing, and then they're turned into chocolate. Mm. And that ocean voyage um, dissipates a lot of the magic of the cocoa bean. So we go from bean to bar entirely in Ghana. So we have a freshness imperative. And then the third thing we did that was an innovation is we created a new category of chocolate. So there were milk chocolates and dark chocolates, but we created a dark milk chocolate. And to this day, we believe it's the darkest milk chocolate in the world. So it has more than twice the cocoa liquor, which is the essence of the cocoa bean. It's the non-alcoholic, purest, you know, most aromatic and flavorful part of the bean. Mm. Um, And you have to have a a minimum percentage of cocoa liquor to call yourself a dark chocolate. We do more than twice what you need in the U.S. Wow. So it's a very much a dark chocolate. We put a little bit of milk in, a little bit of full cream milk to just temper the inherent um, bitterness that comes with pure cocoa um, liquor, mm-hmm. um, because we thought Americans, you know, grew up on very sweet chocolate. So our, we created a new category, which was dark milk. And the FDA said, you know, if there's a drop of milk in it, milk has to be on the label. We've never had a, a label before that was dark chocolate with milk. So it's right. either milk dark chocolate, or you have to call it dark milk chocolate. So we created a new chocolate category. So those three things were our, why we're different. And um, to this day, we, we aim to have very clean ingredient statements, no artificial flavors, no, um, no, you know, we don't alkalize or dutch our cocoa powder, which is very, very pure. And people can get it. They can come to our website at omanhini.com um, is, is probably the best way and, or, and, or give us a call at 1-800-LOVE-CHALK and we'll, we could tell you where in your part of the country you might be able to purchase it. Um, but your best bet is probably right on the website. Honestly, I've not I have not had a chance to try it, but I can't wait to try it. So I am definitely going to order some and uh, and see if there's a place near me that carries it or anything like that. Because um, just you sitting there talking about it, I'm like, mm, yeah, I'm going to need some chocolate today. So. <laughs> Um, so I want to, I want to change before we, before we wrap up, um, I, I do want to ask you about something that I think is an important conversation to have, um, in addition to everything that we've talked about. Um, but one of the things that, um, I think it's very timely considering, um, you know, just kind of the state of our, our world today, um, is what this experience has taught you about race. Um, you know, at, you know, the elephant in the room you're a white guy and you're starting a company in Africa. What did that, what did that process look like? Was that, did that make you uneasy at all? Was that difficult? And what have you learned in that process, especially having started really in 1991 and bringing to today? Well, and I suppose, you know, let me go back to almost 1978 when I was a schoolboy. And, and 
ironically, the book I just wrote, Obruni and the Chocolate Factory, the word Obruni is the tree word for white person. Um, and so every white person is called an Obruni and they will call you that by name. So what I, going back, um, you know, 39 years, I would walk outside in the town of Sunyani where there were not very many light skinned people at all. I was the only one. I was, so, I was sort of a celebrity by virtue of race. People say, Oh, Bruni, Oh, Bruni, 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 you know, and when they want to come and shake my hand and say good morning to me and children would want to press my skin because they'd never seen sort of suntan skin. So they'd push their little fingers to watch my, my, my sort of reddish skin, sunburned skin turn white, you know, mm-hmm. with their finger pressed in. And so that was a novelty. And, uh, you know, there was a, an element of curiosity and affection, but a sense of, um, you know, I, there was a table, I couldn't, when I would walk into a, uh, any, any place, it was a library or a clinic or a chop bar, which was like a little, little, you know, roadside kiosk or something to get something to drink or something to eat. People in Ghana were unfailingly polite, but like all human beings, they were also curious. So they, I'd walk in and every head would bop up from their plate of fufu or their, their drink or their beer. They'd look up at me, stare a little bit like, what's this Obruni doing? You know, in, in much the same way that perhaps, um, um, you know, if you're in a white majority area of the U S someone of color comes in to the rest, you, you know, the head bobs up, you notice, and then you catch yourself and then you go back. But there is this sort of curiosity. Um, I never found hostility um, into this day, and maybe because I've just been there so long. Yeah. The Ghanaians I work with and the fact that I have some language, very small, but some language ability in Shui. People knew I was there in the coup years, knew I was there in the very difficult times, and I have not given up on this project, right. which frankly, you know, many Americans come in, yes. want to do a deal, get frustrated blame the host country for all their ills and then they leave angry and mad. And I always told myself it would never, I would never do that. I just, I had too much affection for the country. And if it ever failed, it, it, you know, business things fail. That's part of it. It's no, sometimes it's no one's fault exactly. It's usually a combination of shortcomings and a larger economy, maybe friendly, you know, larger, good economic news can lift bad projects and bad economic climate could sink very good projects. So, you know, you try to depersonalize it, which would be my other lesson. Yeah. But um, I, I don't know. I guess that the, the question really probably should be directed to some of my Ghanaian partners and how do they um, regard dealing with a no Bruni, um, with a, a white person. Um, you know, I will say that in this, you know, and part of the reason I wrote the book was because I saw sort of globalism under attack right now. Mm. I mean, I think the United States does well. There's a lot of places in the world that are fascinated by American popular culture, movies and music and our universities. Everyone would love to come to the U.S. to study. We have an enormous amount of goodwill in the world. And I think by trading with other countries and showing how there could be wealth creation that benefits everybody around the world, everybody, you know, it's a very good thing for the United States. And so I, I felt, you know, at this moment, it was very important to make an argument that us, it's, it's not just multinationals that benefit from globalism um, yeah. um, and, and sort of cultural, intercultural commerce. You know, it's, it's very small companies. It's this tiny little printing shop in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah. It's Omanhini, the world's probably smallest chocolate maker. 
by comparison mm-hmm. to the big the big boys. You know, it, it affects all of us. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's the case I really wanted to build. You know, I, I'm sure I provide some comic relief to my Ghanaian um, <laughs> colleagues as as this O'Bruni who'd never. And in all my all these years, I mean, I've learned something new every time I go back to Ghana. I am not by any means, uh, you know, feel like I've figured out this country or this culture. And I think that's why I love going back so much because it is, it is nuanced. It's complicated. Like anything that's a value, it's not what it appears to be at first blush. And I think that's, um, you know, we have to be kind of forgiving. There's going to be missteps, cultural missteps, spoken um, acts, activities that, that are missteps. Absolutely. And you just got to keep you have a big enough heart to forgive and forget and come back and try again on, on both sides of that table. Yeah. So um, to the extent there was anyone that seemed um, upset with the fact that I happened to be white, I don't, I don't remember it. And I may have consciously decided to forget about it, but you know, that it was always a very welcoming country that just wanted serious business people to yeah. come and, and understand that this wasn't like going and setting up a lemonade stand um, in New York City, and there's 11 million people ready to buy your product. But this is a, an emerging economy. It is not, you know, it is trying to move from where it started as a former colony to, to a first world economy. And it's yeah. not going to be a clean transition. It's going to be yeah. missteps and misfirings and misunderstandings. And, you know, do you have the patience to play that game? And do you enjoy playing that game? Right. And to me, the answer for both questions resoundingly was yes, sign me up. Absolutely. And I think the point that you made about you stayed is such an important point to make. It seems so simple, but it is so valuable. And I think just in general, I mean, I do a lot of work in Kenya and obviously it's the, you know, completely different country, other side of Africa, but a lot of the values are the same. A lot of the experiences are the same. They're very similar. Um, And, you know, I think one of the things that's been so great for me personally is developing these relationships. And, and you know, I, I call them my Kenyan family and, and they they know I'm not going anywhere. I'm not giving up on them and the things that we're working on. Like I'm, I'm in it for the long haul um, and they know that. And, you know, when they see that I keep coming back <laughs> over and over again, they, right. they see that and they see that, you know, there's a commitment there. And and like you said, that. I think this has been a, a a common issue over the years of people going into, you know, whether it's a country in Africa or whether it's some somewhere in Asia or South America, and they try to set up and, and start a business there, and then they get frustrated and then they leave, um, and that can put a, a bad taste in the mouths of 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 the, you know, the people that are are living there that are affected by that. Um, but I think that you know your and, commi- it, and it affects the whoever comes next. So Absolutely. American that comes in, you know, you're likely to meet a room full of people whose arms are crossed, they don't, their heads canted to the side, and it's yeah. like, all right, tell me another story. Right. You know, what are you doing here? And are you gonna, are you going to abandon this? And I would say that um, starting businesses is hard in the United States, oh, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, so, so much of it is you stick to it. I'm sure, you know, you start a podcast. How many listeners do you have your first week or first month? It is a commitment to doing this every week, right. every year. Right. And you build, you know, there's, you know, my father, a source of great wisdom. And in my book, I talk about fathers quite a bit. You know, 
you too can work 60, 70 hours a week, spend 25 years, and then you get to be an overnight success. Right. That (laughs) other people we look at as overnight success is usually, you know, you've been at this a long time and you deserve the benefits, but none of us walked in. um, And I don't know what this myth persists that, you know, you can be 20 years old, create a billion dollars and you're done, you know, and it seems not effortless, but it seems um, to there's not an appreciation for the patient application of time and talent and capital over the long term to solve some of the most intractable, difficult problems. Yes, you can create an app or a game or something that's well and good, but some of the big problems of wealth creation and poverty and disenfranchisement and income inequality are are huge problems. They're not Mm -hmm. going to be solved by an app or, or technology necessarily. It's going to be kind of patient applications of all sorts of human talent and ingenuity and innovation. And that's what brings me satisfaction. So if, you know, what, what hurts is people say, oh, you're, you're this slow company. You know, investors would have bailed on you in year five or seven or 12. Well, then they would have missed the full story. Yes. And I don't, I don't know what I, if I have a better answer than that, but some things aren't five-year deals. Amen. Amen um, to that. <laughs> so, um, so that's that's the windmill I'm tilting at, I suppose, Molly. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you you touched on it. Um, obviously, it's uh, it's uh, Obroni. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Obruni. Obruni. Obruni and the Chocolate Factory is the book that you released. Um, And so I will have the links to where you can obviously check out Omanhini and um, check out uh, Stephen's book and everything uh, for the listeners in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. Um, I can't wait to read it. I think uh, just your story, just the, the little bit that we got to talk here today, I am so impressed by everything that you've done. And um, I can't wait to learn more and just really learn, you know, kind of dive deep into the story. And I think the obviously the name of the book is is awesome. <laughs> Such a creative name um, and perfect and so fitting. Um, but Stephen, this is actually the part of the show right here at the end where um, I get to ask you just kind of some fun questions and get to know you a little bit more. Um, and I wanted to do okay. it a little bit differently today because I usually ask, you know, questions like, do you like tacos or burritos and things like that? But I wanted to do some chocolate themed questions um, because, you know, obviously it's timely because we're talking about chocolate. So um, is it okay if I ask you a couple fun questions here here at the end? Let's go for it. Absolutely. Okay. So do you prefer chocolate ice cream or chocolate pudding? Oh, chocolate pudding. (laughs) Um, Do you like chocolate pie or chocolate cake? Chocolate cake. (laughs) Hot chocolate or sipping chocolate? Sipping chocolate. Ooh, I love sipping chocolate. By the way, PSA, if you're ever in North Carolina, you need to go to a place in Asheville called the French Broad Chocolate Company. I believe it. French Broad Chocolate Factory, French Broad Chocolate Company, something like that. They have uh, the best sipping chocolate. I don't know where they get it from, but it is like heaven on earth. It's so good. Um, Dark chocolate or milk chocolate? And I know that you introduced me to dark milk chocolate. So I'm going to put all of those in there. Dark chocolate, milk chocolate, or dark milk chocolate? (laughs) Omanhini, 48% dark milk chocolate. <laughs> All the way. And what is, your favorite, All the way. what is your favorite way to enjoy chocolate? You know, I love chocolate with a glass of milk. Yes. And I think the contrast between the cold milk and that sort of vanilla, like that pure cutting, bracing cold milk and, and the dark milk chocolate, it's, it's they're two really simple flavors. I, you know, I'm not a big fan of let's put bacon and all this other stuff in our talk. <laughs> I just like a pure chocolate and pure milk and I'm in heaven. 
I love it. I love it. Well, Stephen, this has been so much fun. And I just, um, I really appreciate your honesty and um, the hard work that you have done. And uh, this was just, this was a pleasure. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Molly, my pleasure. And uh, great, great. Um, I'm very grateful to you and to your listeners for indulging some time on Oman Heaney. So thank you. No pun intended on the indulging. I learned so much from this conversation with Steven. He's one of those people that I feel like the more I talk with him, the more I learn and I'm challenged and encouraged. I'm so glad that he helped me to better understand the cocoa industry and all its intricacies and the challenges surrounding it, while also sharing with me the hopes and the encouragement that he has to see the industry flourish and help so many people in Ghana and beyond. I will have all of Stephen's information as well as where you can find more about Omanhini chocolate in the show notes. Another huge thank you to this week's podcast sponsor, Causebox. Visit stillbeingmolly.com slash Causebox and use the coupon code MOLLY for $15 off. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you are a first-time listener of the show, welcome! We're new best friends! <laughs> Be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring amazing entrepreneurs and business owners who are literally changing the world with what they do for a living. And if you are my regular listeners of the show, you're my people, thank you so much for tuning in week in and week out, and thank you for your support. Be sure to head on over to iTunes, Google Play, Radio Public, and now Spotify. Yes, you can get my podcast on Spotify. And make sure you are subscribed to the show. Clicking that subscribe or follow button helps to make sure that you never miss a new episode of the podcast. And if you wouldn't mind, would you mind heading on over to iTunes and leaving a review of the show? Leaving a review really does help me to know what you're liking and how the show is personally impacting you. And if you share the show on social media, be sure to use the hashtag Business with Purpose Podcast or tag me at Still Being Molly on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. This show was edited by my amazing husband and executive producer, John Stillman, and the music is by Mark Killian of Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening and go do something good with purpose on purpose.